0: You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. All right, if you've got your Bibles, go to First Kings chapter 18. The last three weeks we've been together, we've been in a series, uh, we've been looking at marriage. Uh, the next three weeks, beginning next week, we'll look at uh, parenting, and this morning has nothing to do with either of those, uh, or everything to do with it. It depends. It's a, this is what we call in the preaching world a one off. Okay, uh, it means I'm not in the, we're not in the middle of a series. Or we're taking a break, and I got I got a favorite chapter of the Old Testament, and so that's where I want to be. First Kings chapter 18, and we're going to walk through. Uh, walk through this chapter together this morning this is um you know we love underdog stories i mean we're kind of drawn to that by nature i mean you know the the story of rocky balboa a great underdog story um uh rudy right is, you know Ru, we love rudy the, the the little engine that could i mean maybe not all right so anyways but we love them because so you know so maybe there's an obstacle maybe there's a bully maybe there's this impossibility you know i mean that, that you, you you remember the scene i mean rocky standing in the middle of the ring against ivan drago the the huge guy i mean just totally massive man and little rocky standing there and he and drago says i'll break you right and rocky looks at him and says go for it yeah and just everything in us is like yeah you know it's on the underdog's going to win here um, we, we love that. We, we love that. Uh, there's a sports writer uh, came up on my flipboard this week, and he was writing about um, uh, Leicester City um, soccer team. It's this thing they do in England, all right. So, but it, evidently they're this great underdog story. This uh, one of the greatest. He calls it one of the greatest underdog stories in the history of sports, and he cites all these other underdog stories. But th- this is what he says. He 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 really focuses in on the story of the coach on the things. It's, it's a great little paragraph. He says, but there's another story that's just as captivating. A, a story that's impossible not to root for. Every single person's had moments in their job where they feel like a failure. They've been so publicly ostracized by co-workers that they've questioned their own self-worth. They've had their skills and work ethic dragged through the mud. Everyone has asked for multiple chances, only to fail again and again. That's why the uh, Leicester city manager Claudio Renier's story is so easy to root for. He's the everyman. He's the one that's been beaten down and humiliated, yet his search for redemption and acceptance is so relatable. It's, it's Rainier's story that makes this Leicester city team so easy to support. Renner, like the team he manages, is the ultimate underdog. He, he's the, he goes on and recounts the, the life that this guy's had, and the career that he's had, and the, and the, the ridicule that he's taken, and, and yet he takes this team, a team of a bunch of misfit uh, soccer players, I guess, and, and, they, and, they, and they win, and they do what what no one thought could ever be done. And so you read the story, and you you're looking for a soccer game to watch after it. You were inspired by that. Well, this morning in 1 Kings 18, this is one of those underdog stories. Maybe the ultimate underdog story of stories. It's the story of uh, the prophet Elijah, and he goes to a king Ahab, the the bad, wicked, evil king Ahab. And Ahab had married a woman named Jezebel who worshipped Baal, had drug Ahab into the worship of Baal. All of Israel was worshipping Baal. And Elijah, the sole prophet, says to Ahab, bring all your prophets, bring these guys. We'll meet on the Mount of Carmel and we'll have a God contest and we're going to see whose God is the real God. And yet the text builds it up and you know from Israel's history at this point that Elijah's the underdog. He's been a guy in hiding for three years. And yet he's going to meet on the top of Mount Carmel against all of Israel and all of Baal's prophets. And it's a showdown that, um, that in every way is impossible for Elijah, but we'll see the power of God emerge. This is what I want to do. I want to walk through this passage and I want to make a few points along the way and then um, want us to to pray together and leave here encouraged as the body of Christ. So chapter 18, Here's here it goes, verse 1. says, After many days the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I'll send rain upon the earth. So Elijah uh, went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. So here's what you need to know in in Chapter 17, the beginning of chapter 17, Elijah comes up. God says, hey, listen, go to Ahab. Say to Ahab, no rain, no dew, nothing's going to be wet. There's going to be drought until I say there's going to be drought. And the reason is, is because at the end of 16, we're introduced to Ahab. He's called the most wicked king in Israel's history. This is the northern part of the divided kingdom. The most wicked wicked king. In fact, he'd done more, it says, to provoke God than any king had ever done before, which is saying quite a bit. And the reason is, is, because he had married a woman named Jezebel. Jezebel was from Sidon. Her dad was the king of Sidon. Ahab married this woman in a political arrangement. Jezebel came. She was a charismatic figure and was turning all of Israel's heart to the Baal. In fact, Ahab, the king of Israel, the king of God's people in the north, was so wrapped up into it, he built an altar to Baal, he built a temple of worship for Baal, and he began to lead the nation in the sacrifices to Baal, which were wicked. So Elijah comes, God's prophet, shows up to Ahab, says, Look, no rain. Baal is the god of lightning and thunder and rain and fertility. And Elijah says, look, no rain for you until I come back and give the word. And then Elijah goes into hiding for three years. And here in chapter 18, God has called him. He's come out of hiding. He's supposed to go present himself to Ahab. It's been three years, and he's going to tell Ahab, listen, rain is going to come. And it will come after this God contest on the Mount of Carmel. Well, in the intervening place, there's a guy we're introduced named Obadiah. Obadiah is the chief in command for Ahab. And this is what it says about him verse 3. Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. That means he was number two. Now, Obadiah, this is the narrator's comment about it. Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets hid them by 50s in a cave and fed them with bread and water. Jezebel was so mad at Elijah, she began looking for him. She sought to kill him. And so what she did was she began to systematically exterminate the prophets in Israel. And Obadiah, the number two, he feared God, yet he worked for Ahab. He took 100 of those prophets. He hid them in the caves, 50 in one, 50 in another, and in his, at his own expense provided them bread and water and kept them safe. And then um, what what happens next, verse 5, Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land, to all the springs of the water, and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and the mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So where Obadiah is presented as a guy of great character, he fears God and protects his people. Ahab, the king, married to Jezebel, All he cares about is economics and the horses for his military. So they divided the land, verse 6, between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself. Obadiah went in another direction by himself. They're out looking for the pastures. And 7, and as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord, Elijah? He'd known about Elijah Elijah's been AWOL for three years and all of a sudden Obadiah meets him and he falls to the ground and says, man, here you are. And I think what what Obadiah is saying is, man, Elijah's back. Uh, Salvation's going to come. There's going to be relief from the famine. And yet Obadiah, this guy who is presented with great character, he fears the Lord. He takes great care of God's people. He's protected the prophet's. Elijah's going to ask him to risk yet again in trust of the Lord. And he said, Elijah said, yes, uh, it's I. Go and tell your Lord, meaning Ahab, behold, Elijah's here. And he said, Obadiah says, well, how have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there's no nation or kingdom where my Lord is not sent to seek you and when they would say, he's not here, he would, they would take an oath of the kingdom and the nation that they've not found you. And now you say, go tell the Lord, behold, Elijah's here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the Spirit of the Lord will carry you. I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab, and he cannot find you, he'll kill me, although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth, and goes on to tell about all that he's done. He says, look... Elijah, this sounds great, and I'm so glad you're back, and I fear the Lord, and I've taken care of the prophets, but what you're asking me to do is essentially suicide. I'm the number two. I'm going to go to Ahab, and I'm going to say, Hey, Elijah's here, and then I know you, Elijah. The Spirit of the Lord's going to pick you up and take you, and then I'm going to be left there, and you're not going to show for the appointment, and Ahab's going to kill me. And Elijah says, Hey, you don't have to worry about that. I've come here to meet Ahab. I've come here to have my confrontation. I mean, the great thing about Obadiah, r- real quickly, is some people read this and they think, well, Obadiah, he's, he's kind of a fickle guy. He must, be, he must stand there for Israel, you know, he have much faith. He's kind of. But listen, this is a guy who's a civil servant, faithful to God, where he's, his faith's not perfect by any means. Man, he still fears for his life. You can be faithful. It doesn't mean the absence of fear. But he's a guy who's risked his life. He's a guy who's trusted God. He's a guy that in the midst of all of the craziness that's been going on in Israel and all of the things in which this wicked woman Jezebel, has he's a guy who took some folks at his own expense and at the cost of his life, and he hit them and he protected them, and then he comes and says, Man, I, I don't know if I can do this, but, but Elijah, if you're saying this is what God wants... Then I'll trust him. I'll trust him. Doesn't mean I might not die. Doesn't mean that the Spirit of the Lord might not take you away. I, I, I don't know. But if this is what the Lord's telling me to do, I will trust him. Here's what's great Obadiah is not called to be Elijah. Man, Elijah, he's out in your face. He's going to do some crazy things. He's going to be the guy that's going to poke the bear. He's going to be the one that comes and does the thing everyone's going to write about for years later. And yet, here's Obadiah. He's just a faithful guy that loves the Lord. He fears God. He's trying to take care of his people. Not everybody called to be an Elijah. Man, but we're all called to trust God. We're all called in the places that we are Every day we have the opportunities to hear and feel the Spirit's prompting in our life and to go, okay, that's where you're leading me. That's where I'll go. And man, I don't know. It might, it might cost me a really awkward moment with somebody. It might... But Lord, if this is where you're leading me, that's where I'll go. That is faith. It's an important prelude to what comes up because the whole issue in the story here is who do you trust? I mean, who do you trust? Why do you do what you do? And doing what you do, how does that reveal who you believe God is? Who are you trusting in? Are you trusting in the real God of the Bible? Or somehow, unwittingly, unknowingly, you've created a God in your own image that you are worshiping. This is going to give us some things to think about here. Well, so, Obadiah does it. Ahab and Elijah meet. Look at verse 17. It says, When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? This is what a a, He's a troubler. So the last time Ahab saw Elijah, he showed up. There hadn't been rain for three years. You're causing all this trouble. Don't you see there's, there's drought and there's famine? Look at all the things that, that you've caused. Look at all the mess that you've made, Elijah. You're the troublemaker here. Look at what Elijah says in verse 18. And he answered, I've not troubled Israel, but you have. And your father's house, because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the veils. Here's what's so interesting. Who's the real troublemaker? Is it the one who came and pronounced God? So in one sense, Elijah speaks for the real God. In the other sense, A has been propagating and evangelizing this false God. Here's the reality of it. This is what the text is telling us. That a famine for three years is better than idolatry. That no matter what might come in your life, no what hardship, no what famine, no, no drought, no, no difficulty, I mean, whatever may come in your life is better than idolatry. That that which comes from the hand of the Lord, no matter what it is, is better than idolatry. And it is better for you and for me to say, God, I'll trust you. Three years' famine, 40 years' famine. If I lose everything, I will trust you. Rather than to turn from Him and to seek your needs met by some other God. Now, so far I realize this doesn't translate. You think, well, I, there's no Baal. I, I, I know there's no Baal. I mean, I might not know a lot. But I know there's no Baal, right? I mean, there's no Baal church. I, I, I know that. I'm not, I'm not seeking to worship Baal. Let's go on a little further and see what happens. In verse 19, it says, Now therefore send and gather all Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel. And the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. Asherah was Baal's mistress. And all of those who eat at Jezebel's table. Jezebel is financing the the prophets of Baal in the land of Israel. And he says, listen, I want you to go. I want you to call all of Israel. Bring all those prophets and meet me at Mount Carmel. And here's the thing. Mount Carmel is this great spot. We know from ancient history that Mount Carmel is a place that was always viewed as a sanctuary and always viewed as a sanctuary of false gods, the, the, the gods of The the Egyptian gods, the Canaanite gods. In many ways, what Elijah's doing, he's saying, listen, there's going to be a God contest, and you get home court advantage. We're going to play this out, and it's going to be in your stadium with your audience and bring everyone that you can find. And so in verse 20, it says, So Ahab sent all the people of Israel, gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel, And Elijah came near to all the people, and he said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? Vacillating, dancing back and forth between two different opinions. If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, then follow Him. And the people did not answer him a word. I want you to see the scene here. Israel, or this part of Israel, the ten tribes in the north, their forefathers are the ones who had been in slavery in Egypt. God had come through Moses and and claimed them, redeemed them. Had said to them, hey listen, You're my people. You're not just slaves of Egypt. I know that's what you thought for 400 years. But all along, you've been my people. I am the God of creation. I am the only true God, and you are mine. And so he redeems them. Brings them out of slavery, brings them out of harm, brings them through the wilderness, and wants them to lead them into the promised land. The generation that came out didn't trust him. The generation that went in, we find from the book of Joshua, the book of Judges, and so on, didn't trust him. The people begin clamoring, well, here's our problem. We we don't have a king that we can see and touch and, 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 and pay reverence to, like all the other nations, so God relents, he gives them Saul. Saul's a king for a little while, and then he anoints David, a man after his own heart. David reigns for 40 years. He has a son Solomon. In fact, Kings begins, the story of Kings begins with the anointing of Solomon, the son of David. The wisest man who ever lived, who lived his life incredibly unwise. By the end of Solomon's day, he'd married a bunch of foreign wives. They'd drug him into adultery. And it sets the stage for that after Solomon dies, the kingdom divides. God's people are in a civil war with each other. Ten tribes go to the north. Israel, there's a series of of tribes of of northern kings. And every one of those kings is recorded in the book of kings. First kings, second kings. And not one of them is good. Every one of them does evil in the sight of God. And Ahab, the seventh king of the north, in chapter 16, says he's the most evil of all of them. He did more to provoke God to anger than any of the other kings. And Elijah steps up, meets all of these folks on Mount Carmel, all these people that have been caught up in the lie that Jezebel's been saying and Ahab's been affirming. And the lie is this. Listen, there's lots of gods. There's a lot of ways to meet the deepest needs that you have. In fact, Baal, let me, let me sell Baal for you for a Baal for a minute. It, it's, it's, it's the God of the royalty. I mean, if you want to be a who's who, you want to make it in life. You want to get on with the get-oners. You want to run with the runners. You want to be in the right circles. Everybody's worshiping Baal and you ought to do it. I mean, look, go to synagogue on Saturday. That's fine. Go worship Yahweh whenever you choose. But man, when it comes down to it, it, when it comes to keeping up, Well, it's got to be a place for Baal in your life. Not only that, they would appeal and say, "Listen, and and not listen. Baal was here long before your God was. Before the Israelites, well, the Israelites were still in slavery. You know what was here? Temples to Baal. We worshipped him. He brought us rain. He brought us fertility. He took care of our needs, our real needs." And when you wake up on Monday morning, who's going to care for your crop? I, listen, pray to, the, pray to Yahweh all you want. But man, you also better give your propers to Baal because He's the one at the end of the day that will make your crops grow or not grow. He's the one at the end of the day will give you a son or won't give you a son. They had a history. They had a royalty. There was also this idea that, listen, the God of the Bible might be good for philosophical discussions up here, but in the day-to-day, man, there are things we need to take into our own hands, and the only way that we can do that is we do that through the worship of Baal. See, it's pretty hard if you're an Israelite. I want you to imagine for a second. I mean, the the way that the Israelites were to relate to God, you know what it was? They were to trust Him. The Israelites were called to trust God. Listen, I'm going to take you into the land. Here's what I want, I want to take you into the land, and I want you to get rid of all the things that are in the land. Get rid of all those other gods. I want you to go in. I, I want. I am going to be your God. Your God alone. You're going to be my people. You're going to worship me and trust me and love me, and you are going to know my grace and my blessings. And one of the things they were supposed to do was to do this thing called Sabbath, for instance. It's where they worked six days a week and they took an entire day off. And listen, if you were an Israelite and it had rained all week and the only sunny day that you had was the day of Sabbath to get your crops out, you still stayed home and didn't go work. And you said, you know what, I'm going to trust God. We're a people who are going to trust God. We're not going to sacrifice our children We're not going to build storehouses beyond our means. What we're going to do is we are going to trust God whatever may come. He's our God. But listen, living by faith, trusting God's pretty hard, isn't it? I mean, it's much easier to wake up and to take things into your own hands. I mean, it's, it's much easier. It's much easier to trust in yourself. Because you see yourself. You know yourself. There are things that you can do. Than to step back and say, you know what, at the end of the day, it's all God's. That's the issue. It wasn't that they had denied God totally. It wasn't that they said, hey, look, um, we, we're God haters. They weren't that. They had some kind of proper... It seemed like respect for the God of Israel, but they also had another opinion, and that, 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 that's not the only way. That's not all you need. You need more than just trusting God. And so they had opinions about Baal, and they danced back and forth between him. and Elijah says, look, here's the deal. If God's God, serve him. If not, don't. Go and serve your Baal. So the people didn't answer a word. In verse 22, then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450. We're going to find some things out about God. Numbers don't really matter to him. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire on it, and I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire on it. And then you call upon the name of your God, and I'll call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he's God. And all the people answered. That's well spoken. Good idea, Elijah. Let me tell you something. If you were an Israelite and you were standing on that hill, I'll tell you what you were hoping for. You were hoping Baal showed up. You were hoping Baal is the one that sent the fire and consumed that. Because here's the reality that you know. Having grown up with all the stories, having grown up with knowing who the God of Israel was, the true God, the Lord God, the real God, you knew that if He showed up and fire came down, it might consume more than the sacrifice. It might consume me also. Because, man, we know how we've lived. We know the things we've said. We know the ways that we've joked about God and followed our bales. We know the lip service that we've paid in the synagogue. And we know how we've lived outside of it. We know the things that we've taught our children. And let me tell you something. As they say, oh, Elijah, good, that's well, good, good plan. Inside, they're hoping. They're hoping the real God doesn't show up. Well, in verse twenty-five, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, "Choose for yourself. You get to pick the bull. This is your place, home court advantage. You pick the bull for your many, and then you call upon your God, but put no fire on it." In twenty-six, this is what they do. Listen to all the religious gyrations they go through. And they took the bull that was given to them, and they prepared it, and called upon the Baal, uh, called upon the name of Baal, from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us!" But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they'd made. Baal, it's a great time to show up. God of rain, we need some rain. God of lightning, we just a sound, that's all we need. So verse 27, Elijah at noon mocked him, saying, Hey, cry aloud, he, you know, for he is a god. He's either musing, I mean he's, he, he's consumed, but he's caught up in his thoughts, or he's relieving himself, he, he might be in the bathroom. Or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and he needs a wake-up call, he must be awakened. So they cried aloud, or maybe they, they cried all the more, and then, they, then notice this, they, they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out. Upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, which means the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. There's nobody that, was, that would have been recording the history of the day that would have said that the prophets of Baal. that they didn't have religious fervor. No one would have said about him. well, it's not that they didn't do enough. They did everything, everything that the customs said, down to the place of of harming themselves, of, of shedding their own blood to try to appease their God, to manipulate Him, to say, hey God, if we do this, will you then? They knew what their God demanded. He demanded sacrifice, even the sacrifice of them. Oh, there was a, even the sacrifice of them slashing themselves. Listen, this is what the Baals do to us. We we are not. Um, I mean, we're disconnected from this passage by time and space, but not by theology. I mean, the reality is, is what. What Elijah is saying is, listen, when you create a God in your own image, your God has the same deficiencies you do. He has a short attention span, he needs to go to the bathroom, and sometimes he's hard to get up in the morning. That's your God. You create the God in your own image, and this is the thing. He demands everything from you to the point of your performance, to the the point of all of your energy, to the point of everything that you can do to appease Him so that He'll finally come through for you. Even to the place of shedding your own blood. Let me ask you, as you think through your life, what are the things that demand everything from you. And that as you perform for them, expend your energy on them, try to keep safe and secure so you don't lose them, what are you hoping comes through for you at the end of the day? Who and what do you feel entitled to by the things that you're doing? That's a great question to answer, who is your God? That if I do this, then this will come through. Is your work your God? Is your children your God? If I, if I raise them just right, if I do all of these things, they're going to be everything I want them to be. They're going to make me proud. What are you giving your life away to that you feel entitled for it to answer you back? Listen, sometimes I think we have a, an evangelist, evangelical bailism. You know how that looks? Well, look, here's the deal. I know, I mean, I know, God, you've been telling me to get in a life group, and I haven't gotten in a life group. I don't I really like people, but okay, fine, I'll get into a life group because I really need some things. I really want you to answer me. I really want to feel closer to you. So I'll get in the life group. I'll even set an alarm at 6.30 in the morning, 6 o'clock in the morning, to be at the 6.30 men's Bible study. Because I know, I know this time, if I do this, then you'll do that. Why do you do what you do? Why you do what you do reveals who you believe God is. Am I doing this to appease God? Am I doing this to get his attention? Am I doing this to finally somehow feel his pleasure? Am I doing this so that God will come through for me? Am I doing this so that God will fulfill his promise? Am I doing this so that God will accept me? Listen, those things aren't bad. I I think you should read your Bible more. I think getting up in the morning and reading your Bible, that's a great thing. If you're getting up and the morning and reading your Bible so that you hope God notices and will hear you then you're getting up and worshiping the wrong God. You're joining the life group so that so you can finally make God happy or appease him or somehow by doing it, then, 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 then God will come. it's just a form of Baalism. We do it in the church, we do it in the world. We do something. We give our lives away to something and feel entitled to it to answer back. There was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. There's a word play here we don't fully see in the English text, but the words there, no voice, Means there was no sound. It was the same word for lightning. There was no lightning. There was no sound. There was no activity. In fact, what Elijah's saying in this wordplay is, he's saying, hey, look, who you're crying out to is no God. Who you're crying out to is non existent. Who you're crying out to is dead. There's no voice. There's no answer. There's no one there. You can cut and slash, and give, and plead, and manipulate, but to that God, He doesn't exist. And in verse 30, there's going to be a change. Notice, there, notice there's no fanaticism on part. Uh, Elijah's not a fanatic. He didn't say, okay, everybody, dim the lights, cue the music, Close your eyes and raise your hand because, man, here comes God. He didn't do that. Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. Do you remember who you are? with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed. And then he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering on the, on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. It's as though Elijah is saying, listen, I want you to know how much your religious activity does not affect God or manipulate Him or bribe Him or entitle Him to you. I'm going to actually stack the deck against God. Because the truth is... All the things we bring, all the sacrifices we make, all the stuff we do to try to impress God and get His attention. It's, it's just like taking water and pouring it on the altar. And we all know this, that wet things don't burn. That's about as good as it's ever going to get. Because at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, no one will be able to question that this... Is an act of God. Let me ask you this: Do you trust God? I mean, trust Him. I'll tell you one place that you can assess this in your life, and then we'll move on. What do you do with your sin? I mean, when, you, when you've sinned as a believer, you, 1 John chapter 1 says, listen, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar, which makes you a sinner, so you're a sinner. But then it says, listen, here's what you do with your sin. You confess your sin, believing that he, is, that he who is faithful and just will forgive your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So let me ask you, what do you do with your sin? I mean, there's two ways to approach God with sin. One, John says, as you go, you confess your sin to God. Believing, trusting that He's faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's one thing to do with your sin. Here's another thing to do with your sin. That you spend a couple of hours or a couple of days or a couple of weeks atoning for your own sin, making your own vows, trying to cleanse yourself, cleaning your own act up. That you come, you wallow in your sin for a while and say, man, I'm never doing that again. And you make all your vows and you recommit to 30 quiet times in 30 days. I mean, you do all the stuff. And then finally come to God and say, see, look at all that I've done. Now here's my sin. Won't you cleanse me? I mean, whether you trust God or not, I think is seen most clearly. And what is it do we do with our sin? Do we come to Him and we say, you know, this sin proves what you've known about me all along. That I'm not holy and I'm not righteous and I have fallen from your glory. And the truth is I can never do anything. I can never do anything to repair the damage I've done to your holy name or the damage that I've done to the image of God. So it's not my works and not my vows and not my attempts at atoning for myself that I trust in. I trust in the finished work of Jesus. And I believe that even now and even in this, you forgive my sin and can cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Listen, that's a sobering thing. And every other response that we have to sin, you know what it is? It's Baalism. Here's the truth. We all are a little bit of a Baal worshiper in, worship in our hearts. Who's your Baal? Who are you pouring your life out for? feeling entitled for a return. So the, the sacrifice is soaking wet. In verse 36, and we'll end here. At the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that... You are God in Israel, and that I'm your servant, and that I have done these things at your word. You know, I was looking at this this week, and I thought, you know, well, what were the Baal prophets doing what they were doing by? It would have had to have been their own word, their own mind, their own creation, their own thinking, this is what God must want because it's what I would want. Verse 37, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that You, O Lord, are God, and that You have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And then Elijah takes all the prophets and slaughters them, and that's a different sermon for a different day. Listen, if you want to know who God is, let me, um, let me help you notice where the fire fell. Who deserved the fire on that mountain? Israel. Israel why I think the people in their hearts were hoping God really wouldn't show up because they knew the judgment would have been for them. And yet what God does is that He sends His fire down, He consumes the the sacrifice, the soaking wet, soppy mess of a sacrifice, licks up the water and leaves the people unharmed. And the, the fire consuming the sacrifice is evidence in the Old Testament that God is satisfied. Listen, it wasn't a bull, and it wasn't because it was the altar, and it wasn't because of the stones, and it wasn't because of Elijah, it was because of God. And because God, in the 9th century B.C., could look forward 900 years to the birth of Jesus, the one fully God, fully man, the second person of the Trinity was going to come into this world, was going to live this life that we could never live, and then was going to go up to a hill, to a mountainside, and offer himself nailed to wood as the sacrifice, the one consumed by fire so that we wouldn't have to be. And that the fire of God's judgment consumes the Son of God on the hill at Golgotha. And we we get to know the, the warmth of His love and His grace and His power. It's not about the religious activity you do. It all comes down to from beginning to end in God's Word. Who do you believe? Who do you trust. God has made the way for you to be reconciled to Him. God has made the way for your sin to be forgiven. God has made the way for your conscience to be cleared. God has made the way for you to know that that eternity that that sits in your heart, that, that desire that burns, that doesn't seem to be any answer to in this life, God has made the way for you to know Him. And it's not by any of the things we naturally do. It's by believing Him. Trusting Him. That at the end of the day, and at the beginning of the day, and at the middle of the day, we'd look and say, I am God's because of Jesus. He loves me first. I don't have to do anything to appease Him or bribe Him or manipulate Him. What is, who is God that He would need anything I have anyway but that I would trust Him? even in the midst of famine, even in the midst of drought, even in the midst where there's no rain and it seems everything's lost. Will you trust Him? I'll tell you, my prayer for us is that we'd be a people who evaluate. What do we do with our sin? Who is it that we worship? Who is it we're giving our life away, expecting entitled something back? Or are we a people who like the folks on the Mount Carmel would see the power of God displayed in the sacrifice of His Son and say that's the real God. That's, that's the real God. I trust Him. I trust Him. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, thanks for the word that you've recorded. The, the scene, the Father, what we realize as we get to the end of 1 Kings chapter 18, as we as we see all of Israel, they're bowed on their face, saying, You are the Lord God. Father, we realize they, they are no underdog. You are no underdog, God. Father, you have you have power and might and Offer mercy and grace. And yet, Father, how we know you is by faith. Not by anything we would ever or could ever do. Father, we receive your sacrifice of Jesus. Father, we receive your love that comes through your Son. Father, we we take hold of and clothe ourselves in the grace that You have offered. And with all confidence and unwavering, declare You are the God that is real. You are our God that saves. And so, Father, we turn and follow You with our life As children, loved, accepted, pleasing in your sight because of your Son. So Father, I pray that you take hold. I pray that you change our theologies where they need to be changed so that we see you more rightly. And we pray this the only way we can. And that is in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.